0: Today, we're continuing our series, Hymns of Advent. We're actually concluding our series. And as I mentioned, the theme is love. And so the song that I want us to look at this morning is a modern take on an Advent hymn, a classic. Uh, it came upon a midnight clear. A few years ago, Chris Tomlin released a version of this song, and uh, I, I kind of like it. And In fact, it's the one that Nate opened with this morning. This is one of those Advent hymns that you may recall slightly differently than others, because apparently, depending on whatever denominational tradition you come from, each one kind of uh, omits certain verses. I don't know if there's a scandal behind that or <laughs> theological whatever. Maybe the writer of this wrote it for all theological traditions, and you can just pick and choose what, you, what verses you like. I don't know. Um, but it was written by a pastor, Edmund Sears, And it originally had five stanzas. And when Chris Tomlin released his version of the song, he combined uh, the first half of one verse and the second half of another, and he added a chorus, as Chris Tomlin has become known for doing. And so let's look at the lyrics here. It came upon the midnight clear, that glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men, from heavens, all gracious king. The world in solemn stillness lie to hear the angels sing. Still through the cloven skies they come, with peaceful wings unfurled, and still their heavenly music floats through all the weary world. And man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise and cease the strife, and hear the angels sing. Glory to God in the highest, glory to God evermore, good news, great joy for all. Melody breaks through the silence, Christ, the Savior, is born. Jesus, the love song of God. Today we're going to look at the theme of love in three ways. We're going to look at love sent, love seen, and love lived. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning uh, for the song that we have sung this morning about Jesus, reminding us of his birth, his life, and ultimately his death and resurrection. Father, give us ears to hear this morning as we uh, try to uh, approach the Scriptures in a way that, um, in a way where we'll, we'll learn and we'll be instructed for living and reminded of these gospel truths. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Father, as we celebrate Christmas uh, in the coming days uh, with family members, friends, loved ones, um, we, we know that there's ultimately going to be some that don't know you, and we we ask that you would give us opportunity throughout this season to share Christ with them. With our families, let it be a time of remembrance, a time of encouragement, as well as celebration as we enjoy giving gifts to each other and all that good stuff and eating food together and spending time. Um, let there be A moment in our celebrations where we really focus on Christ and and remember his life and death and resurrection. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love sent. So if you consider the lyrics I just read from the song Midnight Clear, this world that's described in these lyrics, uh, in, in these short verses, is the world that Jesus was born into. It's a world of conflict. It's a world at war. We've described the hostility and the conflict in the last couple of weeks as we've gone through this series. But this main conflict that is there is that we are by nature at war with God. We are born into a hostility between us and him on our part because of sin. Humanity born into sin is born cut off from God, alienated. And hostile towards him, the song describes humanity's inability to even hear the proclamation amidst all the hostility and strife. Until the spirit of God moves on the heart, the ears remain deaf to the announcement. Now Israel at the time of the birth of Christ had long sat in silence. This song talks about the melody breaking into the silence. They had sat in silence from God for a period of over 400 years. And it's into this silence as the song says that the melody of God, the love song of God breaks through, which is Jesus Christ. So what was being said before the silence, before the years of quiet from God? This morning, I want us to take a look at one of the prophets speaking before the silence as we consider love sent. The prophets and really all the writings of the Old Testament are pointing us to Christ. They were telling us of this coming love song. The book of Zephaniah is perhaps not the most familiar of the prophets to us. He wrote during the reign of Josiah, and he foretold the coming destruction of Judea. He spoke of the coming day of the Lord and of God's judgment on his enemies. And he concludes in chapter 3 by speaking of restoration. Zephaniah does what the other prophets do in their writings. He shows that man is rebellious, wanders from God. But despite Israel and, and her enemies' waywardness, God insists on doing good for his people anyway. So the prophets, time and time again, show that this rebellious people were unable to get themselves out of their waywardness. So God will work things out himself. God would be merciful despite the justice that Israel deserved for their sin. And though he would send judgment, it was always with restoration in mind to bring them back. How can God be merciful when justice demands judgment? The Old Testament doesn't provide the direct answer to this problem. It kind of just asks it and then lets it be. And so it snowballs in anticipation of the answer. Zephaniah speaks of the coming answer, alluding to the coming answer, the love song that was to come. He is writing of Advent, the coming of the Messiah. And so I want to read a little bit of Zephaniah, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. He will quiet you with his, by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, this is an interesting passage. Oftentimes, the prophets are considered to be full of judgment, wrath, and gloom. That's often what we think of uh, when it comes to the prophets and their writings. And certainly, they often do speak of those things. But there is rejoicing. There's love. There's singing throughout as well. Consider what, or rather who, the prophets are pointing to. This restoration that Zephaniah is speaking of is Jesus and his coming. What he will win for his people. Zephaniah is speaking of salvation, reconciliation, and the love of Jesus. He quiets you with his love. This love stills the war of hostility between the sinner and God. He is showing that Jesus exalts over you with loud singing. Now, I don't know if you prefer quiet singing, but what Zephaniah is telling us is that Jesus exalts over us with loud singing. He likes the volume turned up. Salvation is a joyous thing, but not just for the recipient. It's not just joyous for you. Jesus rejoices with gladness. He exults over you with loud singing. Who is this Jesus that we see here? Is he what we often think of God as? A God who loves tepidly but punishes earnestly? Or is he a God who punishes reluctantly but loves tenaciously? Scripture shows us that the latter is true. The late Darren Patrick wrote this in the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible. If you're looking for a study Bible, I might suggest that one. I use it often, and it's, it's got really good notes. This is what he writes. His deepest heart, his bottom-line impulse... Who he actually is for sinners and sufferers that embrace his grace is given to us in verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Despite Israel's own waywardness, this is how God has determined to treat his people. In Christ, who died to clear away any reason for God not to treat us in this way, God's purpose of love is proven and ensured. Repentance is the Spirit's work of changing our mind and causing us to agree with God against our sin, turning us to Christ. The Christian life is one of continually having our mind changed about God and about ourselves. In doing so, the small thoughts of who God is and what he is like change as we see him as he is. By his grace, he leads us into green pastures. And along still waters of fellowship and finding rest in his love. So why does Jesus sing over his people? Well, maybe the point kind of gave that away. It's because Jesus is love sent. And as the song puts it, he is the love song of God. Because he is love sent, he rejoices in the fulfillment of what he came to do. He rejoices at what his work accomplished. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John then says it another way in 1 John 4, nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Before time began, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed loving one another in perfect community. God is triune, three persons, one being. And Because God is love, we know that from 1 John, uh, same chapter that I just read from. We know that the Father is love, we know that the Son is love, and that the Spirit is love. And love by nature is outward giving. It must flow out. For God, speaking of the Father, so loved the world that he gave his Son. The love of God is a giving love. He loved the world so much and in such a way that he gave. He sent his most precious treasure, his son, Jesus. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is love sent. But he is also love seen. Jesus was sent so that his love would be seen face to face. And while we might now not now see him face to face because of the ascension, he still is incarnate. Though risen and glorified, meaning he still has a body. And one day we will see him. And as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we'll see him face to face. A moment ago, I read 1 John 4, 9. Let's extend that to the next verse, verse 10, where it says... In this way, or in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word, propitiation, is a big word. It means to make appeasement or satisfaction to God. It is the turning away of God's wrath for the just judgment for our sin. And John is telling us that Jesus, God the Son, Love sent has made this appeasement and satisfaction to God and turned away the wrath of God for us. This is love, that Jesus would do this for us. A passage we've read a lot lately, uh, but I hope it's sinking deep down into your heart. Reminding uh, each other of these things is a good thing. It's one of the best teachers for us to be reminded. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One more passage showing us the love of God seen in Christ Jesus, Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done but by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This love of Jesus was made manifest, it was shown, and here in Titus it appeared. The Holy Spirit, through the writers of the New Testament, are saying something important. The love of God is visible through the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. So let's go back to that first question I asked a moment ago. How can God be merciful when justice demands judgment? This is the question that the Old Testament leaves us in anticipation of an answer. The answer is that God's justice and mercy resolve only in the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. On the cross, God's perfect justice is satisfied. But at the same time, His infinite mercy, His love, is displayed. It's shown to us, and we see it. Christ died not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, for all who trust in him. How will God be gracious to people who deserve to be forsaken? What was shadowy in the Old Testament becomes clearly visible in Christ Jesus in the new. God's own son was forsaken so that you never will be. As well This love of Jesus isn't poured out on a future version of you that has it all sorted out. It's not love for a well-put-together religious version of you, someone who's matured a good bit. In Mark 10, there's this well-known account of the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man says he's kept the law from his youth. <clears throat> right off the bat, that's impressive, if true. But clearly he was missing something. First, his question shows us what's missing. He asks, what must I do? He's trying to earn eternal life. We all know Jesus' response, right? It's found in verse 21. We'll read that. Mark ten twenty-one. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What I want you to see this morning is what is said about Jesus before his response. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This young man, bound in his religious chains, was not cleaned up, he was just as lost as any other sinner. That approached Jesus. He was a blind man trying to find his way to God in the darkness. In his blindness, his self righteousness, in his pride, Jesus loved him. Now, Jesus isn't just getting at the idol of his money, though that certainly is an issue. He's going deeper than that, he's going to the heart of earning if the rich young ruler had gone and sold everything and came back running to Jesus and said, okay, I did all that, now what? I tend to think that Jesus likely would have responded with, well, there's just one more thing. Go and do this. And the cycle would have continued. Because until the young man came to the end of his self-righteousness, there would always be one more thing. That's one of the things that the law shows us. We can keep trying and doing and earning and making all these efforts, but there's always one more thing in front of us. You never arrive. Jesus didn't love him for what he could do to earn. The Savior loved him as he was. He needed to see that he couldn't earn that love. He needed to come to the end of himself. And sadly, he walks away. And this is true of us as well. Jesus doesn't love you for what you might become. He loves you for who you are. Enough to die for you in that state. Now certainly he doesn't leave you in that state. But he's not loving you for a fully grown mature version of yourself. He's not going to love you more when you, you know, quote unquote arrive. And he's not going to love you less when you fail. He sees through the religious facades and the spiritual makeup that we put on. The smiles we sometimes plaster on our faces to hide what's going on inside. Have you seen the movie Avatar? If you haven't, I do have an image from that movie that you can take a look at. Maybe it'll ring a bell. A lot of blue people in this movie. It's like the grown-up version of Smurfs. (laughs) But better. I actually enjoyed this film. It's a sci-fi movie from a few years ago. Um, Apparently there's a new one coming out rather soon. Or is out. Lots of blue people. The main character, Jake Sully... Is a paraplegic marine who is sent into the world of Pandora in his deceased brother's place. And there, scientists have created avatars made of human and alien DNA that they can link their minds to. And Sully is able to now walk around the world of Pandora in this avatar. Now, this movie is like 14 hours long. <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. And I've given you a rather weak synopsis. So, you know, if you like sci-fi movies or giant blue aliens, go watch it. It's a it's a enjoyable film. But Jake Sully is a broken human. Quite literally. He can't walk. He's broken. He's dealing with grief and fear. Yet when he puts on this avatar, he's able to do things that he can't do in his human body. He's transformed. Jesus sees through the personal avatar that you put on to try to hide the brokenness that's inside. He sees beyond the the religious facades that we put up. He doesn't love you for the facade. He loves you for what's inside. That's who he came to save. That's who he came to redeem. He loved you enough to be born as a baby in human flesh to live a sinless, perfect life, to go to the cross and die all on your behalf while you were still dead in your sin. He did this. Jesus is love seen. And the final point I want to draw out this morning has to do with how we live in this love of Jesus. Jesus having been sent and his love having been seen and received, how do we live it out? And so let's Begin by taking a look at John 15, verse 9. We're going to read a few verses here. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Excuse me. Love lived out in the life of the believer begins with abiding in the love that Jesus has given to us. And this word abide means to live, it means to continue or to remain in. It's to remain in Christ. When a person is born again, they are described as being in Christ. Tuesday night at our grace group, Nate shared with us from something that he was reading that one of the most common. Names for a Christian in the scriptures is in Christ. This is speaking of who we are. In this chapter, the context of this chapter, Jesus is giving some final teaching to his disciples before he goes to the cross. He's telling them that they are to rest in Christ as savior and sustainer and the one who will produce good works or fruit in them. As well, this chapter is often misunderstood, as if to say that one could be saved and not abide. That is not the case. To abide is to live in Christ. It's to remain in Christ. And so when a person is born again, as I mentioned, they are described as in Christ. So to abide is to be saved. (coughs) Abiding is the position of all true believers. The difference between those abiding and those not abiding is the difference between the saved and the unsaved. Any branches that are not in the vine, the relationship of being in Christ will be cut off and burnt up. Meaning that there are some who will attend church, put on religious facades like the rich young ruler, and sadly depart. As John says in 1 John, they will leave to show that they were not of us. The language translated here in verse 10 is a bit clunky and easily can be misunderstood to be a condition for love. And this is not the thrust of what Jesus was saying. It would be better understood or translated that Jesus is saying, If you abide in my love, so if you are in Christ, you will be obedient. His love is not a result of our obedience. Rather, our obedience is the result of his love for us and our being in him. It's the same love he shares with God the Father. And that is shared with us. Obedience is the fruit of our union with Christ. It's what's produced in us. And this is because Jesus' love has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit. Now, his commandments that we're told to walk in are not burdensome, they're they're a joy to walk in. We're not driven to obey Christ in order to earn something from him, to get on his good side. We're driven to obey by a heart of gratitude. A heart that's been changed by him. A heart rejoicing that he has saved us, that he's chosen us and poured his love out in us. And so, brothers and sisters, obedience is a good thing. Obedience is not a burden. It's not an obligation. It's a joy. His commandment is love. John speaks of this in in his first epistle, which we studied earlier this year reading chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John is reiterating for the reader what Jesus taught his disciples the night before his crucifixion. We know that we are in Christ and Christ is in us because we have been given the Holy Spirit. Our confession and our love for one another reveals what has already occurred. They are evidence of what has happened inside. This love drives out fear. (coughs) Fear of punishment and judgment. If this was a conditional relationship of obedience, in order to receive that love from Jesus, then we'd need to be full full of fear and puni- of punishment and judgment. That would be our driving motivation; would be to avoid this punishment. Punishment would be used in order to keep us in line, but that's not the love that's given to us. The commandment is to love. Verse nineteen is key and shows us that we love because He first loved us. So. That's the commandment, love one another. You do this because you're in Christ. You've received his love demonstrated on the cross by faith. So, what's the question here? What is this love? What does this love look like? What does it look like to walk in this love? I, I think there's two ways of seeing what love looks like. The first is found in Romans 12, 9 through 21. So, it's a lengthy portion of scripture, but it's a good one. Not that any of them are bad. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints. Like Randy talked about this morning with taking up a collection for the McArdles, that's just another way we show that, taking up... Um, a collection to serve the needs of others. And, you know, we, we see that in very different ways, whether it's um, putting together a meal train or, or something like that. Contribute to the ne- needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. That's a tough one. Bless and do not curse them. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this first example comes from Paul. His letter to the Romans follows his typical pattern of writing. So like the first eight chapters of Romans are devoted to doctrine. Gospel doctrine. And then the rest of the book gives application of that doctrine. Here is some of that application. The love that we are to have for one another. Genuine love, as he describes it, is brotherly. Not brotherly in the sense of like, you know, headlocks and noogies or whatever. <laughs> Although, I mean, hey, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. It's brotherly. It shows honor to one another. It puts each other first. It isn't slothful. It rejoices in hope. It's patient, generous, hospitable. It blesses and it does not curse. It weeps when others weep. It seeks harmony, unity, and it serves. It associates with the lowly. It overcomes evil with good. That's one example of living this love out. The second way we see what love looks like is simply... By looking at the commandments, looking at them as a description of what love looks like. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the law is summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor. Paul says in Galatians 6 that in bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. Now we also know that Jesus fulfilled the law. In Romans 8, 3-4, through 4, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who are in Christ Jesus because Christ fulfilled the law. If you are a believer, this is true of you. And so as you walk according to the Spirit, his fruit, as we've seen in Galatians 5, begins to grow in you. And it's interesting, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit, which we're not going to read this morning, but go back and check that out in Galatians 5, kind of also describes love and what it looks like, what living out love looks like. This fruit is actually for your brothers and your sisters. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the law doesn't serve as a means to righteousness. It can't. Because Christ is our righteousness. Righteousness. So the law isn't our motivation, but it does serve the believer as wisdom and a description of what our love looks like. Derek would say that love causes us to accidentally keep the law, meaning as we abide in Christ, we love God and we love one another, walking in obedience because of the freedom we've received. Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So use your liberty to love and serve one another, not to gratify the flesh. Because there will be times when we as believers do give into the flesh and gratify the flesh. There will be times when we are disobedient. We've talked a lot about the fruit of what the Lord does by sending his love into us, um, being obedience. But the reality is we have this flesh with us and we will at times give into it and disobey. We will gratify the flesh. We will sin. And the prescription for that is to believe the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. We as brothers and sisters then are to come along such a one and call them back to that and to walk in love again. So let's land all this. Beloved, the Christmas season is full of reminders of the love of Christ. We talk about it often during the season. So let that fill your heart. Remember that love was sent. Love was seen in Christ Jesus. And we're enabled and called to live in it. We're, We're called to love one another, to walk in obedience, serving one another, caring for one another. Jesus came as the love song, breaking through the silence and hostility Of sinful hearts to restore relationship between us and God. He showed this love by going to the cross and dying for your sin. Ending the hostility. He poured out his love into your heart. And you have been liberated. You have been freed. To live this way. Loving each other. Serving each other. Not trying to earn. But simply walking in step with the spirit. And so... I call you this morning to love one another. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God evermore. Good news. Great joy for all. Melody breaks through the silence. Christ, the Savior, is born. Jesus, the love song of God.